The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm Paul Rudy, and I have a, an additional special guest today, Craig McDonald of the McDonald Real Estate Group. And uh, we're going to talk to Craig and get an update. Uh, I have him on periodically. I, I like to think about real estate, not only in, from a housing standpoint, housing affordability, but even kind of what's going on in the commercial area, uh, et cetera, and get his kind of thoughts on is it getting better or worse? What areas are getting stronger? Which ones are having a little tougher time? I have David Rudy, Certified Financial Planner Professional with Rudy Wealth Management. David, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And back, Dr. Fred Gertz. Yeah, good to be back. The resident, the, uh, resident the genius. <laughs> yeah, you missed all the fun. Uh, well, it gives us plenty to talk about today, right. both from, uh, obviously, uh, with the excess fluctuation, quite normal, right. actually, but it, to some degree, it's not it's not normal. You have to go back a long time, 90 years before you see a, a, 10%, a 10% drawdown or correction from an all-time high in such a short period. So that part, it's, it's pretty unusual, but from a, we'll get into this a little bit, right. but 10% decline is what yeah, you know, 10 to, to 14 about, would yeah. be just really normal. He used to talk about the, the Crosstown bus. The Crosstown yeah. bus has been late. But it, uh, well, it came, it, uh, it, you know, we've, we came off of a year where, you know, it was a very long period without even a 3% drawdown in the right. stock market. It was the longest period without a 5%. So, and I find historically that when we get years with extraordinarily low volatility, you usually for the next year or two get a little bit higher than average volatility. Yeah. doesn't I, have to work that way, but right. that's what... Well, we have to also be careful about the name. A correction doesn't really mean what it says. It just means a 10% downturn. Whether it was incorrect before or correct now is really... Uh, uh, irrelevant. Uh, I agree. I, you know, it's just to me, it's a health restoring pullback. We'll right. get into more of that. You can call in with your questions at two one seven three five six nine three nine seven or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at three five one five three five seven. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, Fred, I'm going to start with you first, uh, just for a lot of reasons. I'm not all that happy about what I've seen on the political side when it comes to budgets. You and I frequently talk about, uh, you know, you don't, you don't get overly concerned about a 2 or 3% budget deficit uh, in any particular year. I don't either. But it seems to me in order to reach a minimum of 60 votes needed in the Senate, at least, Republicans... I don't want to get political at all, uh, so I'm trying to stay away from that. Uh, so I'll try to I'll try to choose my language, uh, but certainly the Democrats made a lot of demands for non-military spending, right. and a big push for this was military spending. Uh, from, so to me, the result completely both sides was a budget blowout. Now I'm on record of saying, because when you look at the data, people think I'm always conservative. I'm not. Um, uh, you, you know, I'm probably more libertarian or something like that. I've been very clear that. Republican administrations and, and Congresses, they tend to be the big spenders. I mean, you know, people can think otherwise, but they are. This just proves it to me. And it seems to me, before I ask my question, it, it seems that for now a decade or so, maybe longer, we've had a trend toward higher tax, somewhat higher taxes, higher regulation, uh, spending increased quite a bit the last decade. Uh, I think really essentially raising the burden of government. And I think that's this is my theory that that helped drag down the GDP. I know we had crisis yeah. and all that, uh, but we've, we, you know, here we come off a period with modest 2.2 percent from mid 2009 GD, real GDP growth right. from mid 2000 2009 to early 2017. Obviously, some of that can be explained by the crisis, but in 2017 we we started to see a shift from that uh, more towards pretty sweeping tax regulation in some areas, at least yeah. corporate tax rates. Regulation was cut dramatically. And we pick up three quarters in a row, pretty close to 3% real GDP. And it looks like the first quarter might be 4% real GDP. Um, is this dream of getting back to a long-term potential 3.5%, 4% growth, has that died? Did that die last week? I don't think so. In the short run, it may, uh, it may actually have been improved. But in the long run, I think it's uh, going to be a drag, as you said. Uh, there's always the 
the uh, question of who are the big spenders? Is it the Republicans or the Democrats? And the answer usually is it's the incumbents. Uh, whoever is in charge uh, wants to sure. make people happy. It's called the the uh, two Santa Claus theory. Uh, one, one Santa Claus brings you tax cuts. The other Santa Claus brings you extra spending. And it turns out now that the uh, Republicans, with, with the cooperation of the Democrats, are uh, in that same mode. So uh, this is sort of like uh, going back to uh, 2009, where he had a stimulus, uh, a so-called stimulus that was uh, brought in by the Obama administration. Well, this is a kind of similar stimulus, but we don't really need a stimulation right now. We're in a, a situation where we're uh, close or maybe beyond full employment. Uh, inflation is starting to tick up just a little bit. So this is not the time <coughs> for this. So, so again, it's I think it's more, as you said, a political issue. It's not going to have any negative impact in the short run, it may uh, be more difficult to correct in the long run. And I, and I agree with that. But you know, now that we're starting to see trillion-dollar deficits, as far as right. the eye can see, um, if I'm a CFO of a major corporation, a few weeks back or over the la- you know since the beginning of the year, I've been pretty giddy yeah. thinking, wow, we're going to have corporate tax rates go from 35 to 21%. They appeared to be permanent from that standpoint. Now, if I'm the CFO seeing trillion dollar deficits, I'm seeing a government, which for every dollar in government spends, it's either taxed or borrowed from the private sector. I see now the excuse they're going to use to raise taxes again. Right. And so that's gonna, it's gonna cause me to cool my jets. Uh, Maybe, so I'm not sure that, uh, again, it's it's a long run kind of thing. I'm not sure that's been incorporated in the uh, asset prices already, but certainly a a concern. the the more immediate kind of uh, explanation, which people have been giving for uh, a couple of years, it finally happened, is that uh, uh, th- there's going to be uh, a little bit of monetary tightening. Uh, the economy is uh, getting close to uh, full employment. We're going to ha- start to have uh, inflation concerns, and this may be a kind of uh, typical uh, Fed-induced kind of recession where you – not recession, but uh, drawback – uh, there, there are two kinds of uh, bad situations. One is when the economy actually goes down, as it happened in 2008 and 2009. The other is when the t- Fed tightens uh, things and things actually uh, uh, draw back a little bit. And that's a normal course of things. So I think this is more a, a normal kind of situation. The, 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 the spending bill, I think, is on top of that and probably not directly related, but certainly related in the long run. Uh, I got. We have an email. Uh, can you please explain to me how losing money is healthy? I guess this relates to my health restoring correction. You must be a multi-trillionaire and can afford to lose money. Well, I, I think I'll take issue with both of those. <laughs> Nobody's ever accused me of <laughs> of being a multi-trillionaire. And when, when I hear people talk about losing money, that's a different concept yeah. to me. What I'm talking about. Maybe it's healthy for you. For me, losing money is not healthy, Mike. Now, I I, I get that yeah. completely because what. And, and it's only because the, so, the media, the financial media and the industry has done such a good job at telling people when stock prices decline that it's a loss. Yeah. And I've always said on this show and in my newsletters to clients that to, how do you lose money? I got in this business that I was at 1,000. And now, well, yeah. they were celebrating a few, couple weeks ago that the Dow was at 24.6. Now there's people in the streets panicking because we're at 24 six. Uh, but this is the psychology of it all. But to create a loss in, the, in a broadly diversified stock portfolio that's held for a lifetime um, takes human intervention. Somebody has to conf- confuse a temporary decline with a permanent loss, panic and sell. That's how you create losses. And this is what I'm talking about, Mike. Yes. Is, is the, the price you pay for these uh, excess returns. The, the so-called equity premium uh, comes from the fact that in, in the long term, you usually gain more from investing in stocks you do from fixed income. The two the, to three the, times uh, net of inflation. But the price you pay is this kind of- The uh, uncertainty, right? Uncertainty or volatility, whatever you want. I'll call, call it unpredictability. Yeah. I'll call it fluctuation. We're, all, we're talking about the same thing, Fred. And I've, I've been real clear, if a client sends me a text or an email and says, hey, what are you thinking? I said, I think that this, that, here's all I know, P- the premium returns that investors have earned from owning the great companies or partially owning the great yeah. companies of America and the world is directly related to the premium fluctuation they've been willing to put up with. Right. You're, you use the word volatility, it's the same thing. And, 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 or unpredictability. Uh, 
It's the very there, it's this it's the sa two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You don't want to wish away premium fluctuation because to do that now you've taken away the unpredictability yeah. and, and built more certainty into returns and therefore you're going to get a lower return. And there's also a kind of psychological aspect to it that people. Is, assume, is there anything else, Fred, yeah, besides that? Yeah, that people assume that the highest value is sort of the the correct value. For example, and going back, getting ahead of uh, Craig here, uh, people say, "Well, my my house was worth." X amount in 2006, and then right. it fell off, and I lost a lot of money. Well, they may have bought the house in uh, 20 years before that, and it went up a great deal. And they assume that all the gains are theirs to, to, to keep, and, and uh, any kind of downturn is some abnormal uh, situation. And that's we, not the way it works in and that's financial called, markets. Yes, and that's called anchoring. We all do it as humans. Of course, this is, again, the right side of our brain that interferes with everything. It's our emotional side. And it makes all our decisions for us. We use right. our left side of our brain to backfill with logic right. for our, you know, emotional responses. Right. So, uh, people do. This is why when I said, "Is there any other issues other than be, you know, behavioral or, or emotional right. or psychological?" To me, that's always been um, the undoing of su of successful investors. And yeah, this is when the uh, uh, when the uh, issue really comes to the fore. Now, people have to actually. Uh, control themselves in a situation well, like you this. You do, and it, it's very hard uh, to lay at rest, uh, to be in a room at rest, as somebody said. I can't remember the quote, uh, but it's 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 one of the more difficult things to do. But remember what I said a couple minutes ago. It wasn't, but a couple weeks ago, everybody was excited that we were at twenty four thousand yeah. six hundred, and now people are somewhat panicked that we're at twenty four thousand six hundred. Yeah. This 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 basically illustrates to me why most investors on their own have a very difficult time. And, and also, part of it, it's anchoring it's, all these things. Yeah. It suggests also that uh, uh, people may think it's over now, and it may or may not be over. Uh, most uh, corrections don't take place in a three-week period where you go down 10% and, and recover most of it within. If only it worked that way, yeah. right? See, there has right. to be that uncertainty, that unpredictability. Yeah. There's a, I was reading a, a biography of, uh, of Grant, and one of his um, ideas was that the most dangerous time is when you think the crisis is over and uh, this is a situation now i mean in a sense it gives people a chance to go back and do some thinking and rebalancing is still on the cards in the cards now you still have a, you're still within eight percent of an all-time yeah, high yeah and i think that's that's a, that's a good thought fred but you know th th these types of declines and even worse should be expected annually if you can't deal with that you don't belong in the great companies right. of america in the world that's not to be a, a grouch about it it's just you know this this is kind of what they do and again, uh, you can't anticipate these sudden 10% declines. We yeah. haven't had anything like this for 90 years as far as the suddenness right. for a 10% correction. And it also, uh, if you think about it, the, the challenge of uh, being a market timer is you, uh, three weeks ago you had to uh, uh, gotten out of uh, stocks I've been out for two or three weeks to get back in now. It's really uh, an impossible kind of task to, to what, do that. I think what people what went unnoticed, Fred, is everybody was saying the market was overvalued yeah. and we were trading close to an 18 times next year's earnings. Well, a week ago, you could buy it at about 16 or 16 and a half times yeah. uh, next year's earnings for the S Standard Poor's 500 index. It was a real <laughs> sudden contraction, uh, which may mean, who knows, It's it's probably a... If I look at the data, we wonder, are we going to get a V-shaped bounce yeah. or, a, or are we going to go down and test the lows? It looks like it's about a 50-50 shot. So that's yeah. a coin flip. So that, yeah. that's useless. But there have been people, uh, Martin Feldstein and uh, Robert Schiller have been talking about this for two or three years now. They're eventually, they're going to be well, right. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, that's the, these perma bears, you know, that's, yeah. you know, and they'll go out dancing in the streets and saying, well, yeah. see, I told you so. Yeah, you, yeah. you've been telling us so since Dow 6,500. Uh, and that's the problem. It, it, again, it's it's my view that the, the financial media's mission is to remove our long-term historical perspective. That way you yeah. need them, you need their headlines, and that way you're living off of headlines. Yeah. And really all you have then is chaos theory. This thing could bust at the seams at any moment. Uh, yeah. You know, tune in at 10 for tonight's special. Yeah, I get it psychological that uh, if someone has been in the market for a long time, you sort of uh, have your plan, you let it ride. If you just inherited a million dollars and have to decide whether to uh, put it all in the market right now, that's a, a psychologically a different kind of task. It, it, well, it all circles back yeah. to that psychological dimension. Uh, that is the problem area, which, and what I've noticed doing this for 35 years, uh, when the Dow went from 1,000 to 1,500, I heard the same things. I heard the same things during the 87 crash when suddenly we're at 2,700 on the Dow in the yeah. next with it by the end of the day, we were in the 1700s. Um, 
I've told my sons this. I said, guys, this seems to be the only business, the only industry where people do not learn from the past. Yeah. Now I know, you know, we we all don't always learn from the past, but this is pretty clear that wait a minute says the 62 year old that walks in my office and tells me stocks are risky. And I have to say, well, I don't know where you got that idea. Tell me where you got that idea. Cause you haven't lived it. Because today's retiree walking in that was born around the end of World War II, the month they were born, the S&P 500 was probably trading at 20, rounded up. Last I looked, it was still 26 or 2700. How do people lose money in something like that? And his only answer can be is human intervention. Uh, you know, surprise is the mother of panic and panic causes us to do things we shouldn't do. The fact that there's been so much print and so many CNBC specials to me on a 10% decline tells me I'm 58. So, you know, who knows how long I can stay in this business. The boys will probably kick me out prematurely, (laughs) but my kids that are in their twenties and thirties, I say, thank God every day that it doesn't, change and it doesn't get better because that's why people that's why we were sent into the world because without a and it's not just me that we got a lot of great advisors in champagne urbana area we're we're blessed to have so many good ones uh, from all walks Uh, people need that people just generally don't come out of the patch with faith patience and discipline that's required sometimes we have to borrow it from our advisor and we pay them to do that Uh, but it can be the difference but yeah choose the right advisor too there are advisors who tell you to uh, convert this to uh, a certain kind of thing and get into some uh, some bad options. There's, there's okay. you know, buyer beware a little bit on that one. There's all kinds of charlatans, but but by and by, as I start to reflect on a 35 year career, I can I can think of certainly a handful of people in this town, the Scott Moes, uh, you know, just there's a number of them. Uh, Kurt Anderson. There's a lot of really good people in this town. I, I'm leaving some out just because I because my memory. Um, there's a lot of good people in this town. You just have to ask your friends yeah. who they are and, 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 and you know, find one that's been around yeah. for two or three decades. And usually if, if you're a bad dude or a bad lady, you're blown out by then. So that's a good point. Well, uh, we'll get back to some of that. But I do have uh, Craig McDonald here and Craig of the McDonald Group. Uh, the McDonald Group's here in town. Craig is a University of Illinois graduate. Love living in Champaign, I guess, Craig, so much you never left. Yeah, my wife and I both. <laughs> uh, <coughs> been a long journey. But you've been a, you've been a long time. You're no newcomer to being a successful entrepreneur in Champaign-Urbana. You've, you've pretty much had a 30-year career plus, right? Chronic. Yeah. You know, I'm a chronic you know, I'm entrepreneur. Get, let me guess. You don't have a plan B. I don't have a plan okay. B. I say all entrepreneurs I know that have been really successful will pretty much, in so many words, tell you, well, I really didn't have a plan B. <laughs> so I think well, that drives them. We bet half of everything we have and hope we don't lose twice in a row. I mean, that's kind of the way we, we operate our lives. Yeah. I always, one of my sayings is I came into this world with nothing and I still have half of it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Craig created the McDonald Group Real Estate Company in 2009 and has, has had the number one producing real estate team in Champaign-Urbana for a number of years, 2012, 13, 14. We're going to ask them some questions about real estate and ultimately how they relate to wealth and financial planning. So we're going to try to tie it into what we do. But first, because I'm sure all our local listeners are wondering, listeners are wondering, give us your read as a realtor. Um, kind of what's the real estate market like in Champaign? And I know that's a pretty broad brush there in the surrounding areas right now. You know, we're, we're 10 years removed from the crisis. Uh, people weren't going to buy houses anymore. Ever. Ever. Or cars or shoes or vacations. Tell us about the last few years. Uh, what's your experience been? I would equate it to be like Champagne. Um, here in Champagne, we have a kind of a protected society to a certain degree. What do you um, mean by that? The University of Illinois is not going to go anywhere. Um, our healthcare systems, I um, mean, the Carl Christie, um, are very, very solid base for the University of Illinois. Um, we're not in Florida. Um, we don't get the the historical run-ups of properties and and deflation of properties overnight. Um, we're a stable Midwestern type. Um, community that um, is, has a basis tied very much to the University of Illinois. Um, as long as the University of Illinois does not come crashing down, which the state may have something to do with that, but as long as we stay solid there, we're, we're going to have a fairly solid real estate market. Uh, Fred, on that note, Fred, sorry, Greg, wasn't the last recession 
probably one of the first ones where Champaign-Urbana really felt it materially. Yeah, probably more so, but not nearly as even. It's always been uh, Decatur and Danville are much more volatile okay. than Champaign, and that was still true. But Champaign actually was uh, hit harder than usual. Uh, again, the recession was uh, deeper than most recessions, and secondly, the state. Uh, reduced and, and, and for a couple of years almost stopped the aid to the uh, university. So that added to the, the problems. And so you would agree that pretty much, it's always been my impression, as Craig said, uh, he said protected. I mean, it's kind of insulated from a lot of the worries that a lot right. of communities are not. Yeah, insulated, insulated in, in a double way because the University of Illinois has a advantage in the sense that uh, there's kind of a, a cue for people wanting to go here. So we haven't had to worry about the uh, enrollment declines of Eastern or Western or places like like that who are, are really under severe stress. So I, su- I su- suspect that Charleston probably is not the same, same as uh, Or Decatur or Danville. Yeah. I mean, I, okay, I mean so, they're, very, they're oh, not similar at all. Okay. So Champaign-Urbana truly is, I, I feel that, so you're confirming it, uh, that it's somewhat insulated from a lot of the shocks that so many other people and that then creates relative stability from a, is it more of a boring stability in Champaign-Urbana? Yeah, that's a very good way to describe it. Um, from 2009, the, kind of the, the end of the crash, when we started our business, what a great time to start a uh, real estate business. At least you discouraged the competition. Yeah, exactly right. Um, we did see probably around a 10% decline in the higher end, maybe even some more than that. Um, as we sit here today, those losses have been regained um, for the most part. Um, we sold a house recently that we bought in 2006, um, just slightly, slightly less than what we bought it for. And um, that was the height of the boom. I mean, okay. in 2006, yep, that was it. When, we, when we bought it, and um, it, it's interesting, I went back and looked, because and, people are now are are talking this morning about interest rates, right? You know, the, the tick up, and we're going to get into that. Too, how by that the way. <laughs> how that's going to affect us? But when I look back when we bought our house, the average interest rate was you know six and a half to six yep. and three quarters, yep. and that's at the boom, right? The very top of the market, people weren't concerned about a six and a half point interest rate because that's really a normal, Fred, from an historical perspective, wouldn't you say? A six percent interest rate yeah, is kind I, of I, a I normal. Came Cha- I came to Champagne in uh, nineteen eighty and. A ten percent, a ten percent, but from a normalization. Yeah, right. Okay, so we have that stability. Now people are. So let me ask you: Is this a? We hear these concepts that there's buyers' markets and sellers' markets. Is first, is that even true? Is that is, is that is, is there supply and demand imbalance in Champagne? Yes, and I wouldn't say so much supply imbalance in all of Champagne. There are certain pockets, okay, um, sub sub markets that we get to that um, are certainly more desirable, um, certainly more sellable or perceived as more sellable. Um, as we get to the higher end, Champagne it may not have completely rebounded um, to the levels that that we were at previously. So there's there's specific markets. Like an example, if you just go by the numbers, we have about a 4.4 month supply of homes. Um, if you own a $250,000 house, that's probably accurate. I mean, if you own a $700,000 house, that's not very accurate at all. It's going to take you, more months. Yes. I mean, when you look at how many homes have sold in that price range and, and what you can expect in a year's time to be taken off the market, I mean, it's, it's a much has longer the, haul. Has the appetite changed for that? Is there just less appetite because of 2008, 2009 shock that people say, I'm not sure I want to get into that million dollar or that $700,000 house? Not sure an attitude. I'm, yeah. Is there an attitude? I'm not adjustment? sure if I'm smart enough to say that. Well, just, I just um, wonder if you feel it. But there's some reluctancy. Okay. Um, there's fewer people, and maybe we just have recently come out of this emotional side of the crash, yes. that they don't exactly have that confidence yet that you know things are going to be okay for many years to come. Um, I mean, I got a call yesterday from a gentleman that that just finally felt that, that I, hey, my wife and I are doing pretty good. It's time maybe we move up a little bit, and and those are positive signs. That's not into a million dollar home, but that's from a, you know a two fifty to a four hundred, and that's a normal type move in our market. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So right now, it's really just you can't really. It would be like a lot of what we have to say. It depends. You tell me what price you're talking about, Paul. Is it, so supply demand imbalance at two fifty to three hundred. Yeah, it's tight. They seem to be building a lot of that. Yeah, I, well, I can look out my window and see them just stamp them out. You can, I mean, you can go to new construction, and it doesn't take um, Dr. Fred here to be able to assess that 
they don't build much over 350 in just the spec type homes. Um, when they start pressing that 400, and a spec home, I mean, a builder builds a home with no buyer, just right. puts it out there, and and somebody hopes that somebody buys it. You don't see a lot of spec homes over that four hundred thousand dollar number when there's a reason for it. Are that, these two hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred thousand dollar houses that they're just kind of like putting up pretty quickly? They all seem to have a similar kind of all they're like built out of a mold, so to speak. I don't know what the term is for it. Um, are they going to stand the test of time from a quality standpoint? Oh yeah. Okay. I mean. Um, that's a really interesting question because um, we go in these homes and I'm with several different builders on a weekly or monthly basis. And, I mean, they've made these homes so energy efficient, I mean, from a regulation standpoint, they now have to put air circulation <laughs> units oh, into them. So, I mean, it's we've regulated ourselves to a point that we have to correct it. And so the, the construction and the, I guess, a long-term viability of the home I don't think has changed much. It's, you know, it's hard to get a new home for 250 now. Um, you're talking, you know, 1,500 square foot home for 250. What do you new. find uh, the diff, it, it, if I could paint a broad brush, the, the main outside of price it, that people choose a certain house, is it education? Is it particular school area? What's really kind of causing people to live in one part of town versus another? I would say that at, at some point, it's a trend as well, too, as much as anything else. Paul, you lived um, through the uh, when we all lived in the center part of town yeah, and yeah. the mass exodus to Southwest Champaign because right. we could build the bigger and right. more grandiose bigger houses, lot, yeah. bigger lots and all that. Um, we're almost seeing the reverse um, reverse work now that people are moving back towards the center of Champaign and, and looking for those kind of things. We, too, are a market. The housing is a market, whether people want to believe it or not. I think that we said that, you know, everybody thinks that their home is worth their highest value, just like their <laughs> stock was. I mean, that that's so true, but the market really dictates. The market doesn't care what you think, no. right? No, or what you did to your house right. or what you paid for it. And neither, by the way, does the buyer wanting to buy your house. They could care less what they've done. What they're doing is assessing the value, not necessarily the price, the value of this home. But isn't that what we always do? Uh, you know, we all focus on price or what's the, does that advisor charge or that person charge? Yes. It always comes down to a value proposition. It sure does. Is that why the real estate industry is dominated by two or three players in a town typically? Um, I wouldn't, no. I okay. don't think that, I don't think that's the reason okay. at all. I think it's difficult um, to explain and to communicate the difference between price and value. Okay that when I'm working with a seller, trying to get them to understand how the market and how the value, somebody's value in their house, is it on a lake, is it not on a lake, is it close to a country club, is it got big square footage or a small yard, all those things are value. And the difficult part of our job is we're also built on huge emotion that a certain person will come in and overpay grossly if you compare the statistics to right, that, right. but they didn't pay when it became the value to them. Right. This value to them was worth everything. So when we try to, you know, analyze the price of a home, you know, the unicorn shows up every now and then. Is and it, that's where we get to the highest is what yeah. they, everybody thinks their house is Sometimes worth. it's a feeling, right? This house feels right. Well, yeah. But it costs more than the other three houses. But this one feels better. Um, you had this experience. We walked into a house one time. You knew exactly what it was it. Right, you got it. I mean, so does mom, so does the kids. I mean, that's how it works. Okay, so people talk about house home improvements. That's kind of a financial issue, so I'm going to kind of circle back and get back to that. Um, I think most people just automatically assume that if I put more money in my house, I'm going to get it back. It's an investment, they would probably call it. In your experience, do these projects, or are there some projects, all pro do all projects are going to get all your money back, some you're going to get none, some you're going to get all of it? All projects aren't created equal. Um, from a, just a standpoint of what will you get back most? Which are more? What are the most worthwhile if you're trying to sell kit, your house and get as much back as you can from kitchen a, and master baths? Where the and why? Where do we mostly live? I, my wife and I are talking about this now. So we downsized to a five bedroom house or a four bedroom. I don't know. There's a bedroom in the basement, and there's two of us, and two of my children, uh, three live in town. We don't need four extra bedrooms and we did put a new kitchen in but now we're thinking i think i can pretty much have a kitchen in a bedroom 
you know, and we're thinking of downsizing again. Yes, I mean that's that is that is a very common practice right now, um, especially theme. when your kids live in the general area and they don't you don't have to bring them back for holidays and need space for them. Is anybody in Champaign Urbana? You know, I, you know when I go to Florida, or I go to other communities. There seem to be these communities built around fifty plus. Do we have any such development going on that really caters to people in their fifties or early sixties that say, "Look, I don't need but a really nice kitchen." A nice bedroom, maybe a den, and with other people like me around me. Not a specific development. Is there a reason for that? Is, that, is there not the market there, or, there you or go. it would be there? There you go. There's not the entire market to be able to take 100 acres or whatever it might be and bank on that people like you and, and me and are going to show up um, and move out of their house if they're been happy with 30 years. So it's, it's a, people are retiring to go to Florida. Not many are retiring to come back to Champaign, especially with the state woes, fewer and fewer. Right. So, I mean, when you put improvements to a house, even those improvements are going to depreciate, aren't they? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that's. I think this is all part of you don't always get it back. Are there high-quality small houses available? Yes, there are. Um, you know, and I, I'm not trying to push one area over yeah. the other. It's not no, no, my position just... here. But, you know, some of the homes in the Clark Park area, I mean, everybody's familiar with the Clark Park area. Some of them that have been redone, I mean, some of them have been had nothing done to them. Right. But some of them have been redone are, I mean, absolutely stunning. And with the smaller footprints, the smaller, you know, bedrooms, the smaller, but extraordinarily nice. And when we get one of those, Dr. Gertz, they don't last very long. Because there's, like you said, there is a bit of a trend to kind of want to move back more central for some people. Yes. Uh, and then they, a lot of them don't want to do a lot of work once they buy it. So if they find that house that's been redone in a way they, that feels right to them, I could see that. I'm going to pivot here a little bit, Dave, with you. Because, um, Craig, over time, Fred, it's fair to say, over time, you know, define time, but over, over a reasonable lengthy periods of times, me- measured in decades, I guess, uh, prices go up, and people have capital gains when they want to sell. They can exclude a certain amount, still a pretty large amount. And David, I'm sure when you took your certified financial planners exam, you had to deal with this issue all the time. Um, how do people deal with that, David? Well, I th- I think it's good that you bring this up actually because I get this question a lot from clients, and they say, you know, maybe it's someone that's had owned their house for 20 plus years, and they do have some gains built in, and they're wondering like. Well, I'm going to owe taxes on, you know, my gains when I sell my house, right? And I, I tell them, you know, m- most often the answer is no, because there is this capital gain exclusion on personal homes. Um, and there's some rules around kind of the requirements for being able to qualify for that exclusion. Um, the amount is 250000 per person. So a married couple would be five hundred, an individual would be 250000 So... I mean, you would really have to have a, a really significant gain built into your home. And uh, like Craig was saying, in Champaign, chances are, unless you have a, a really big house, it's going to be hard to really exceed these limits. Um, but then the qualification rules is basically that you have to live in the house for two out of the last five years, and then you have to use it as your principal residence for, I think, that same time period. And there, I, I think there's rules like if you don't meet that full time period, you get some pro rata exclusion. That's where, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably best to talk to your CPA and say, hey, I'm planning on selling my house. Here's what I bought it for. Here's what I'm going to be selling it for, likely somewhere around there. And just talk to them about the tax consequences because at the end of the day, you know, they're the experts. How often does this come up from a practical standpoint in Champaign-Urbana? Is it, are people is it, are they even aware of it? Are they, are they even concerned with it? Most people, if they're moving up, they may be selling a house at a gain, but it's almost irrelevant in Champaign most of the time, isn't it? I've not ever had it come yeah. up, really. Yeah. It's not ever been a consideration um, in any transaction I've been involved in. Okay. Occasionally, and you'll have people moving from California, and they uh, actually have a capital gain. They want to buy a bigger house they normally would to protect that uh, that gain. But again, it's people it's moving a nice here. problem, Fred. Yeah. Nice problem. Um, <laughs> does it make sense to get a home warranty? I see these marketed, Craig. I should I don't mean marketed in a, uh, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's bad, when buying a house. Um, my son, Paul, he was recently staying with a friend who never had a water heater start leaking or did have a water heater start leaking just weeks after he moved into his first house. This notes from my son, Paul. <laughs> he didn't have the warranty. The other realtor he was working with had offered to pay for it. Is this common? He certainly wishes he had a warranty, but was that just bad luck? So where, where's your 
because it depends, I bet. Do you buy an extended warranty on your computer? No. Okay, same question. So you really have to, is that, are you, do you mean by that, if I think I can afford to take the risk, I don't need to pick? I know that that Best Buy is making a lot of their money on warranties because some people, if they break their computer, cannot afford to replace the computer or even repair it, so therefore they do it. Uh, I'm gonna give you two exceptions. Okay. Um, other than that, there are, there are two exceptions. If you're dealing with a client that basically all the money they have is that 5% or 10% down payment, they don't have, they've, they've saved for that specific purchase, and they have no money left over, and if something like that were to happen, then a home warranty can be helpful. Um, the other one is if you're buying a, a significantly older home, that there's a good chance that you have a furnace or a refrigerator that's 30 plus years old, that there's a chance it goes out. So those are the two considerations. But if you have sufficient funds to be able to buy a $1,500 refrigerator or, or do something with the furnace, um, our suggestion is usually no. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, you just hear so much about it, and, and you know, it, that leads me to another thought that I didn't even hadn't thought about till just now. Uh, there's a Paulism my kids call them, and I say, just because you can pay for something doesn't mean you can afford it. So often I have seen people uh, looking at three different homes, and the mortgage officer, the mortgage lender, will say, well, you qualify for all three of them. And one of them might be a little, quite a bit more expensive than the other two, bigger, so it's going to cost more to insure, all these things. And on paper, you can make the payment. Is being able to pay for something, what's your, just your personal belief, and how do you guide people? Because I have this theory, or Paulism, that says just because you can pay for something is, doesn't mean you can afford it. How do you deal with that? Do you see people want to push it to the limits? Do you ever? Is that even any of the realtor's business? Our business is to listen to what their needs are. Um, I would even equate this as we make offers on homes. Um, what What's important to them, we, we get clients that may be a Dave Ramsey client, and they have a completely different philosophy than, right. than other people, and that's just a focus or a type of personality that they are. Um, we have people that when they go into negotiation of a contract, absolutely have to win the negotiation. I mean, there's no... That's just the way their DNA is. The way their DNA. And we have people that go into that negotiation that just really want the house. Yeah. So go get the house for me, Craig. So we have to deal with you know, all three. Actually, not three. There's probably a dozen. Right, right. There's different combos. Variables. Yeah. So um, our job is, your job is to be a financial advisor. Um, our job is to give them a range to be comfortable that if in two or three years they do have to sell their home, that we haven't made a mistake, barring some kind of crash that we never can never predict, of course. Okay. I just wonder how... Uh, we, I don't know where that person is in a person's life that says, hey, yeah, you can pay for that, but you can't afford it. I don't think the mortgage lender is going to tell them, have that conversation. Well, it doesn't make them evil. I can give you my take on it. I, the way I think about it is the way that the bank determines how much they're going to lend you is essentially the absolute maximum amount they will loan you before they're too worried that you're not going to be able to pay them back. I mean, that's essentially what it is. So that that doesn't mean that's a good financial decision for you. Chances are, if, if you go to the bank and you say, how much can I qualify basically to borrow for a home mortgage, and they give you that number, chances are you shouldn't be borrowing that full yeah. amount if you want to still have a, a decent amount of discretionary spending for just your general lifestyle beyond just home expenses. Yeah, to bring it back to home, though, uh, 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 car salesman or a real estate agent is not a fiduciary. If it's suitable, that's... Uh, okay, I mean, so you're not, you're not actually telling what they should do or, or trying to get in their mind. You're just trying to help them. Right? How does real or not push them into the higher? I'm not talking about you. I'm talking mm -hmm. just how how do you, how does your industry deal with that? Um, you, you're maybe you're feeling like, man, these people shouldn't buy this house. I know the bankers telling them, but everything I've talked to them about, they're gonna. These people probably isn't a smart move. You know what? We don't. A lot of times, we're not privy to that right. specific information. Okay. I mean, we're really not. Um, another misnomer is that the realtor has this control over a buyer of what house they buy. Right. I mean, it, it is that husband's and wife's or whatever the makeup is choice, and that's a personal choice for them that we really can't push them one way over the other. So People, you're a facilitator. As yeah. As, but are, you're, in a sense, uh, you're an agent for the seller and not for the buyer, aren't you? In, in a sense that they're paying the the, the the seller is paying your or is the buyer 
Oh, who's bringing the money to the table? Yeah. I mean, so that, right. there's another way to look at it that we do all the time and that people assume that since the commission's coming out of the sale of the house, that the seller's paying for it. But the loan that David talked about yeah. is what's paying for that commission. So is the buyer truthfully paying for it? Well, right. If there wasn't a commission, see, a person can only afford so much house. And the fact that there's a commission has nothing. It just means that might cause you to buy a little less house. So I'm I'm under that view that it's neither the buyer, you know, it's 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 probably the buyer if anything. Otherwise, if he didn't have to pay it, he might get that house for six percent less. Maybe not. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. It's interesting that to to, to Doctor Kurtz Gertz question or or comment. Our job, my job, is to give you and your family the information that you need to make the best decision for your family. That has to be un, un, unqualified. I mean, it has to be honest it has to be truthful it has to be the information as best we know that when somebody first lists a home they want all the money in the world sure and then sometimes they just want to get out of the darn thing right usually we're somewhere in the middle but until that person makes that decision it's up to them our job is to give them the information what are the consequences on both sides but then these decisions are always a family decision yeah. we, you, we reject uh uh, listing if it's unreasonable in terms of the price. Yeah, I just want to get a little closer to the mic. What's there. that? Right. Would you would you reject a listing if someone has an, unre- an unrealistic expectation about the price of the home? Usually, when you have somebody that has an unrealistic expectation about the price, they have an unrealistic expectation about everything. <laughs> I think that's probably true. I mean, that's what my I, experience. What I have found that reasonable people looking at the same engine, same information come up with the same answer and when you get into that situation that somebody is that inflexible or won't listen to logic um, I don't know if I would it would be very difficult for me to work with somebody that didn't respect what we were doing is there such thing as a smart buy versus a dumb buy what I mean by that is let's say you've showed a person five or six houses and you know in your heart man if I'm buying a house out of those five it's that one is the smartest buy does that ever tug on you or do you have to stay out of that completely unless they ask you you better stay out of it. Even if they ask you. Yeah. I mean, well, again, I can, I, can give, I can give them the financial information about price per square foot, about comparisons of the homes. But the minute I walk in and say, I'd never buy this home because they have purple walls. the but wife that's cosmetic. I, I, yeah. The wife loves purple walls. Right. And it's no different. I, I kind of gave a and that's probably what you would crazy, say. <laughs> crazy example of it. But that they can be even small that, you know, I have clients that want to do what they want to do. And if it were me, I maybe not I would not make the same choice. But again, it's not my choice. Do sometimes you get one of the two if it's two people involved, <laughs> husband and wife? I know it's not. Uh, where one is is tempted or actually asked you, Craig, which one's the money smart move, and the and the other spouse really doesn't want to hear that. But I mean, yep. there there is a money smart decision oh, sure. here. Oh, there is. And I that, guess that's opinion too, but. To a certain degree, but yes, if somebody asked me to analyze it in depth and what I would do, I would certainly give my opinion. Okay, so if someone said, Craig, I really can't decide between these two. I really want to make the best financial move now. We like them both equally. Uh, I want, which one would you buy? Would you answer that question? Would you want to give me some, I'll give you an example, maybe that maybe illustrates yeah. something like that, that I have a, a home that's built two years ago. And... The people got transferred or took another job out of town, and it's, it's a brand-new home for all practical purpose two years ago. We have a brand-new home. Nobody's ever lived in it, sitting side-by-side. Side. Basically the same homes. The divisions, subdivisions are, are similar and all that. What home would you buy? Well, the question is, the price is the home that's been lived in has some things done to it that are, is going to save you money. Landscaping's been done. Blinds have been put up. You know, personal touches to the property where the other one is just more generic. From a financial standpoint, you'll have to have less outlay when you buy that home. From the new standpoint, you know what? I get to do everything the way I want it. Even though it's not the best financial decision, maybe, it's what I want. Like buying a new car or a used car. It's the very same thing that kind of illustrates that. Okay, so for both of you guys, uh, I read a CNBC article that said, here's how a 5% mortgage rate would roil the U.S. housing market. It said mortgage rates have not been at 5% since 2011, so I'll give you a backdrop. Uh, it says a 5% rate would cause more than a quarter of today's home buyers to slow their plans, according to Redfin survey, and housing affordability is starting to hurt. Uh, so they, they go on just add it all up, and they're trying to say, 
it's getting more expensive. Now you have the average rate around four and a half. Uh, it says one fifth of consumers said 5% rates would cause them to, with more urgency. I do believe that. When interest rates are going up, it does create urgency. And specifically, the deduction on property taxes is now limited to 10,000. So there's a, there's a few issues wrapped in there, but for, for the predominant one is we're at a four and a half percent. I could envision a 5% mortgage rate in the not too distant future. It's not a prediction, but I can envision it. Your take on that, maybe you as an economist, Fred, is that really move the needle? Uh, Go ahead, Fred. Okay. I, I, I probably if it happens gradually over a year or two, and the expectation is it's going to continue. I think it's probably isn't that the big issue? Is yeah. wait, wait a minute, is it going to go higher, or, go, or, or is it going to go back lower yeah. again? But if you assume that it's going to stay there or go higher, it may take a little while for people to adjust. But I don't think it's going to have a big impact over a long term. So for you on the ground now, because we have seen an uptick. Mm-hmm. I got my mortgage at three and three eighths. I can't get that anymore. No. And they're in there, and every headline is interest. You haven't seen anything yet. How's that today on the ground impacting things? There's two sides. There's the buyer side and the seller side. Every time interest rates go up, that buyer can afford less home than what they could the day before. Right. Because they only have so much money in affordability or Back what, to what lender says David they're, said they're qualified or whatever it is. So today they can buy more house than they can if they wait six months and the rates are 5%. From the seller side, as you're thinking about putting the home on the market, let's say, there are more buyers right now at this time, if you believe interest rates are going to go up, than there will be for your house in six months as they go up. So those are considerations that we talk about every day about affordability of houses, the value of homes. Um, but so you can use each side of the argument to say, is it a buyer's or seller's market? Well, you could use those statistics and say, well, right now it's both because the future holds potentially higher interest rates and it's allowing us to you know, be more aggressive um, from the buyer side because they want to lock it in and, and from the seller side because they have more people to buy it. Are you seeing that psych- psychology develop? No, not yet. Okay, so uh, four and a half rates still, I mean, from an historical perspective, I mean, bargain of a lifetime. Yeah, part of that is also uh, buffered by housing prices. If you have a big increase in interest rates, uh, housing prices will uh, adjust. adjust I mean, you have supply and demand, right? Not fully, but uh, partially sure. at least, yeah. So, I mean, markets will clear. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I can't imagine, even if. <laughs> it strikes me that even if we thought interest rates were going to go up in mortgages, that it would create an initial, hey, we better lock it in while we can, we better get what we can. And then to the extent there's a lull after that, that market will clear as well. I mean, people still need homes and they need, they, people adjust. I think we, we don't re- give enough people enough credit for really adjusting pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, life keeps happening. People keep having kids. Right. Um, people keep, you know, Wanting bigger homes, wanting smaller homes, downsizing. Um, life happens, and those needs when life happens need Pop- to be met. Population more coming in or leaving Champaign Urbana area proper? I don't know if this is correct, but I have been told on several occasions that the, we're the only growing county in, in Illinois that's population is increasing. And Fred, I wonder how much of that is just the additional students? Outs- how about if we adjusted for students? The university students are involved in that okay. calculation. Yeah, well, there's this uh, kind of uh, question that uh, I've had for several decades right. uh, 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 with all the new uh, student construction. Uh, what's happening to the old places? So there's this uh, kind of uh, situation where we have lots of new construction, and we still have all the old. Uh, uh, houses around, and yet population's not growing that much. So maybe people are spreading out, smaller families, things of that sort. We've had some monstrous student buildings. I got to <laughs> believe that if all those people that built those got in a room together before they built them, maybe yeah. one or two didn't get built. Is that just my theory? Crackpot. Uh, it's I'm, fair, I'm, fair to say it is. I mean, after being in that business and having done that, I would be along your theory more than than others. That's yeah. there's been a lot built on campus and. Um, again, so we see Carl, Carl's building a seventy-five bit, uh, million dollar building. Yay. Christie's going out there, a hotel. Yeah. I live not too far from there. Is that where we're headed in Champaign-Urbana? In your opinion, we're seeing the reverse migration, but that's certainly going to change the dynamic. Would that be more in your opinion? And maybe you don't know or don't know. Would I expect that to be more purely commercial in that whole area? Where that could that spur additional housing in that no, area? No, I think it's going to spur additional housing. Um, there's already plans for additional apartments out there as well, too, um, that 
and we're, we're going to talk a lot about different demographics that are going to work there. It's just not the doctors. There's a lot of support staff that, yeah. that are going to need affordable housing around that area. It's going to be very, very convenient for them to, to be able to use that area. And, and it's convenient to the interstate. That's why so, they're doing it. So Billy Brews is going to get more crowded at lunch, right? I would, expect, get more crowded. I would expect there's going to be another Billy Brews pop-up somewhere. Right. I think so. And I also, uh, uh, Champaign-Urbana would probably never have a housing bubble because the ability to construct on the edge is virtually limitless. So it's not like San Francisco or someplace where they're constrained geographically. You could Lots always, of cornfields. Yeah. All right. Um, in the last couple minutes, I want to remind people, and Craig McDonald, thanks for being on the show from the McDonald Group. Uh, we'll be holding another seminar on retirement planning. We're going to cover the topic of retirement planning and, ready, and retirement readiness. It's Wednesday, November 15th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at our Rudy Wealth Learning Center at 2502 Galen Drive. In this event, Rudy Wealth Management Team will walk you through the challenges facing those planning retirement, the different decisions you have to make, and how to approach them. We'll, we'll cover reasonable expectations for things like withdrawal rates and ultimately help you decide if you are retirement ready. You can sign up online by going to our seminars page on our website at rudywealth.com or by giving us a call at 35614. That's 35614 or go to rudywealth.com. One of the things, uh, as an aside to that, David, I'll probably talk about, you won't want me to because you know how I go on and on, but <laughs> some of the new research I've done about asset allocation in retirement and how uh, I figured out a way to essentially target higher, I call them enhanced lifestyle, uh, retirement lifestyles, uh, how that asset allocation decision might shift. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in that seminar as well. So that might be of interest, just that by itself. One of the biggest questions people have, and it's a big determinant of outcome, is what's my asset allocation, which is simply how much money am I going to put in income-producing investments like certificates of deposit or bonds, things like that, versus ownership in the great companies of America and the world. It's a big one, and it's an area that I've really done a lot of research in I continue to do that, and I think I'm going to be able to give some insight that might also help people make that decision, things that maybe they haven't heard about before. Well, David, sorry for the you know brief encounter that we had, but uh, hey, you <laughs> no know, we were just down in Captiva, Florida with me. You had enough of me for the week, I'm sure. Again, Craig McDonald from the McDonald Group. Thanks for the update. We really appreciate your openness on this. And of course, the Brain Trust, Dr. Fred Gers. Gertz. <laughs> we're always glad to have Fred back. We, we were a little nervous, I'll be honest. You know, Hey, where's Fred the last show? We're like, yeah. well, he didn't say he wasn't coming. I don't think he might have sent me an email. I didn't see it. Anyway, this is Paul Rudy for Paul Rudy's On The Money. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.